The scripture reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. As you can see, we're in Isaiah. Um, we started um, a few Sundays ago. Uh, I was told... Uh, seminary that when you're preaching it's a good idea to alternate between the Old and New Testament to stress the fact that the Bible is one book. It's about one God and it is a unity. There's a coherence. There's a thread that links the whole of the Bible. And we see that particularly in uh, the prophets. Because just as in the New Testament Jesus and his disciples quote the Old Testament, look back, and they quote Isaiah more than anybody. In Isaiah, Isaiah looks forward to the New Testament and prophesies about a coming Messiah. So it's like the the Bible speaks to itself, both forward through prophecy and backward through quoting the Old Testament in interpreting who Jesus is. Now, if you've uh, been coming for a while, you know where we are in the story. The basic story of the Old Testament is that God is redeeming the world through a single family. He starts with Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and he has a son Joseph, who wrestles with God and is renamed by God Israel. And then Israel's 12 sons become the 12 tribes that God brings to the promised land. And he promises Abraham right at the beginning that through your descendants, the whole world will be blessed. That all the evil, all the corruption of the world will be redeemed through your descendants. But as you go through the Old Testament, you see that Israel did not fulfill its purpose. Human greed, human stupidity led God's people away from worship of the true God. And particularly we saw King Ahaz, rather than turning to God for guidance when he is being attacked and under siege from foreign armies, he makes a bunch of short-sighted political moves that end up with all of God's people enslaved, with Jerusalem destroyed. And so God promises, even though your human kings have let you down, I will fulfill my promise And through you, the descendants of Abraham, I will bring a Messiah, a leader, a new beginning into the world. And that's where we are right right now. Isaiah 7 is when Ahaz turns against God. 
Isaiah 8 is where God tells and prophesies what's going to happen, the destruction of uh, Israel and Judah and Jerusalem. And here, as we begin with Isaiah 9, God begins to talk about this new beginning, a promised Messiah. So let's look. Verse 2. The people in walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So who are these people that Isaiah is talking about? Well, they're the people who've seen this great light. But what is that great light? What is it they've seen? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The light, great light, the promise, is a person, a child. We saw last time when we looked at uh, Isaiah 7, that Isaiah promised that a virgin will conceive and we will call him Emmanuel, God is with us. Who do you know that fulfills that bill? Born to a virgin, a son called Emmanuel. And the government will be on his shoulders. Who do you know that claims to be Lord of all and everybody and everything? He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who do you know that has been called all those names? He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom. Which descendant of David do you know who said, the Repent, for the kingdom of God is here? It's Jesus, of course. More than 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah is talking about him. He's prophesying about what is going to happen in Israel's future, in Isaiah's future. He's doing what prophets do. They talk about what is going to happen in the future and how God is going to repair the damage of foolish, short-sighted political leaders. So that's interesting stuff. You know, pastors talk about stuff like this. A little biblical history is probably good for the Christian soul. But what has this stuff to do for, with us? You know, this was 27 centuries ago. This is literally ancient history. What has it got to do for us right now, today? Well, it tells us something. It tells us something about the God that we worship. Let's go back to verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those landing, living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. So remember, this is Isaiah. He's prophesying about the future, about uh, 740 years or so in the future. He's talking about a future event, the birth of Jesus Christ. And there's a perfectly ordinary way to do that in the Hebrew language. In English, in any language. When you talk about future events, you use the future tense. You know, we say in the past, the people saw a great light. 
In the present, we say that people see a great light. In the future, we say that people will see a great light. That's the human perspective. So why didn't Isaiah say that? The people walking in darkness will see a great light. Well, because it's not Isaiah speaking. It is God who is speaking through him. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. From God's perspective, the people in the future who have seen and know about Jesus are fully present to him. He can talk to them back then, even though they are in Isaiah's future, as if things have already happened to them. He's talking about us, by the way. He is using the perfect tense. Now, I don't know how much you remember about your tenses in English. I was an English teacher, so teaching students about the perfect tense was hard work. But basically, the perfect tense talks about something that has happened but continues to have relevance. So somebody might say they saw Star Wars. It's just a fact about a group of people they saw a movie. They have seen Star Wars suggests that there's some enduring meaning, that, for example, they're able to talk meaningfully about Star Wars because they have seen it. It has, a, has had an effect on them. Something has happened, and it has had an effect, and that's what the perfect tense is all about. So who can speak that way about the future? Isaiah can't. Only God can. And that means, and this is the point, when you think about the God who can prophesy, from God's perspective, my life, your life, everything has already happened. For God, there is no past, present, and future. Everything, every moment, is present to him fully in the now, an eternal now. Book of Hebrews says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, why is that important? Why should you care that that's true? Well, notice what it says. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Why is Jesus' counsel going to be wonderful? Why isn't he just a good counselor? Or a very good counselor. What's wonderful about Jesus? Well, a human counselor helps you think about who you are. Clear and realistic about your life and your situation, and helps you make wise choices about the future. But a human counselor doesn't know the future. A human counselor helps you make wise choices, but you can still be blindsided by people, by life, by situations out of your control. Even the wisest people get hit by trucks sometimes. But not God. Isaiah 46. I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. 
God knows in advance everything that's going to happen because from God's perspective, it's all laid out, present to him, visible to him. One application of that. Why is it so hard to sustain relationships? Why is it so hard to be in love? Because you're revealed. Because you're naked. You're vulnerable. What if you let slip or reveal something ugly that makes your lover turn away in disgust? What are you going to do? What if you become old? What if you become sick? What if you are horribly mutilated by that truck? Is the person still going to love you? You don't know. It's a risk. But that's not true with God. God loves you. All of you. Past, present, and future. He has seen you at your very best, and he has seen you at your very worst, And by the way, your very worst might be in the future. God's seen that too. It's laid out in front of him. And he has chosen to love you. Only God can do that. When God says, I love you, he loves all of you, past, present, and future. And therefore, you cannot lose that love. Because no matter how disgusting you try to be, you can never surprise him. He already knows. He's already seen it. It is fully present to him. And he has chosen to love you anyway. God is omniscient. That means he knows all things and all possible things. He knows himself and he knows everything about what he has created. Remember, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. And therefore, you cannot surprise him. And therefore, you cannot lose him. Because he has chosen you first. Completely. Some other things, conclusions you can draw about a God who can prophesy. C.S. Lewis wrote um, a whole chapter on this. Many people, most people, are hag-ridden, it was his phrase, hag-ridden by the future. That is, you worry about what's going to happen in the future. What happens when I get old? What happens at my job? Will I get fired? Will I have enough money for retirement? Will I get sick? Will I be successful? Will everything be okay? Now, 99% of these things will never happen. But they fill our imagination. And they're a tremendous source of worry for people. Worrying about your future, a future that you cannot control, sucks up much of many people's lives. But remember, you have a father who loves you. And he knows that future. And he has promised to walk with you as father walks with a child, hand in hand, forever. And so what do you have to worry about? doesn't mean bad things are not going to happen, but he is going to be with you there right when it does happen. And he is going to be with you in the walking up to what happens. And what better promise can you have? Jesus said, 
do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet the Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Don't worry about your future. Also, don't worry about your past. There are no might have beens. Your life is unfolding exactly as it should, because God is in charge. There is no plan B. There is no, if only I had done this or that. If only I had taken that job. If only I had moved to that place. If only I had married that person. If only, if only, if only. How many times do we worry about that? How many times do we let that steal our peace? God is God of the past just as much as he is of the present and the future. They are not ours. They are what God's plan for the world is. And so don't worry about them. There are no accidents. There is no missed opportunity. God knows exactly where you are going in your life. And he knows exactly what you need to have in your life. And he provides it. Your life is exactly the life that God wanted it to be. So don't worry about missed opportunities. There are none. You are alive now. Present to God now. Don't worry about the past. Don't worry about the future. Worry about your relationship with God now. And ask his advice now. You know, if you're faced with tough decisions or difficult situations that do worry you, that you know, you've got an exam coming or you've got some big thing that's happening in your life, well, what do people do? You know, you might, you might wear lucky underwear or some other talisman. You might pour your heart out to your mother and weep over the phone. You might try to find other people to ask for advice. But if you've got somebody, God, who's already watched you go through this, who held your hand all the way, isn't that the person you should be talking to? Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Your relationship with God is what it's all about. Everything else is just details. All of human history is just details. By the way, let's consider human history. Now, this part might be a little geeky, so if you want to start texting, it's okay. I'll tell you when. As soon as you hear the name Jesus, we're back on track. But we're having a little discursion here, okay? The trouble with this point of view is, if everything is laid out, if the future is as certain as the past, then aren't we just doomed to our fates? Aren't we just locked in? There's no free will. 
Our choices don't matter. Why do we pray? Why do we care about anything if it's all locked in? It's a very good question. And uh, philosophers have argued about it many, many times. Well, I'll give you one way of thinking about it. If you go to the beginning of the Bible, it begins, the Bible begins with these words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Heavens and the earth just means everything, every material thing that there is. So in the beginning, God created the universe. And now we know from Einstein that time and space are a package. They come together. So if you're going to have time, a succession of moments, you need space in which they can occur, and you need matter, things, which can give expression to those moments. Time is a created thing. Space is a created thing. All matter is a created thing. They all have their source in God. So what could you conclude from that? God is the creative source of all things, the entire universe. God's existence, therefore, cannot depend on that universe. Because when the universe was not, he was. And so God exists independent of time and space and matter. And the reason he can do all those things is God is not a material object in the universe like we are. He's not finite. He is pure spirit. Pure spirit whose power sustains the existence of the material universe. But he himself does not need the material universe. Paul puts it this way in the book of Acts. In him, in God, we live and move and have our being. Everything depends on God for its existence. He is the source. But God does not depend on anybody or anything, including the universe. He's completely independent. So how does that help with free will? Well, if we are locked into this mechanical universe where things evolve according to the laws of physics, if things go wrong, if things go bad, there's nothing to be done. The consequences will just spin out. In a closed system, you are locked into whatever outcome the, the components of that system generate. There's no free will. By the way, this is a huge problem for secular people and secular science. If we are just the product of laws of physics operating on matter, then where, where does free will come from in this universe? Everything is mechanically dependent on something else, causally connected to the past. There's no freedom. But, and here you can pay attention again, we have Jesus. God's omniscience, his knowledge of everything, is not only of what is, but what could be. In the Bible, many times, he talks about what could happen if somebody doesn't repent, or what would happen if they do repent, if they turn back to him. God creates a world, perfectly good, and through human rebellion, sin, he sees it begin to spin out of control. Literally, going to hell. Genesis 6. 
the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was severely troubled. If God's heart is troubled, you know it's a big problem. Remember, all of creation, past, present, and future, are present to God. He sees it. And he sees, it's like he's watching a movie. Except he doesn't have to watch it scene by scene. He watches all the scenes together. And he sees it start off good in the garden, as he made it, filled with light and beauty and grace and goodness. And he sees the movie getting darker and darker and darker until, at the end, there's literally no light. God is absent. You're in hell. The absence of God's love and God's grace and God's life. And that is the human movie. That is the movie of human history. From light to dark, ending in hell. And everyone is in that movie. Because it's all of history. All of creation. That's the situation. However, there's one person who's outside that movie. One person who is with God. Because remember, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you have one person that is still filled with light and goodness, without darkness or any corruption, and who still has free will. Because he's not locked into this movie. He is outside of it outside of time and space. And that, of course, is Jesus. And so what does he do? He gives up his permission. He gives up all his glory. He gives up his freedom. He gives up his power, his relationship with God. Jesus is infinite, pure spirit, untouched by anything material. And he gave that all up to become a finite human being locked into this story. But not completely locked in. Remember, virgin birth, he's not locked into the past of the rest of the world like everyone else is. And so he can be an antidote to that darkness. He can shine in the darkness because he is not corrupted by it. And everyone in this human movie who is illuminated by him, who turns to him, repents of their darkness and turns to him, who holds on to him, now they have a different potential ending. They're not locked in to this human movie that ends in darkness and hell. And so everything that is locked into Jesus, everything that is built on him, Everything and everybody that is sustained by belief and faith in him. Everybody in the past who looked forward in faith to his coming, and everyone in the future who looks back on his coming in faith, now can receive his light. Now is no longer locked into the movie. Now there can be a different outcome. And we can make choices that are free. Only because Jesus was willing to enter in. Only because God is outside of time and space, 
And yet Jesus freely chose to enter in to our dark movie. In a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table. This is where you grab hold of him. Literally eat him. Bring him into yourself. Claim him. Fill yourself with light so that you are free in this dark movie to share that light. This is a miracle. This table, it looks so ordinary. This table says you don't have to go to hell. Your life does not have to end up in the dark place. This table says you are freely invited to grab hold of Jesus and put your faith in him and let go of that dark movie. Have a new future filled with new possibilities, wonderful things that could not happen without Jesus. And you can be certain of all the promises because God cannot be surprised. There's no truck that's going to knock his plan off track. There's nothing in this world, no power of evil or of darkness that can triumph over his light. That's why his promises are secure, because he knows the beginning, he knows the end, and he knows everything in between. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. Grab hold of his purpose. Grab hold of Jesus and never, ever let go, because he's the only right out of here. That's the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in you there is no beginning or ending, that you are infinite, omnipotent, omniscient, perfect in holiness, perfect in wisdom, perfect, Lord, in everything you do, perfect in justice, perfect in grace and forgiveness. Lord, this morning, help us catch hold of you, Show us how to put our faith in you and build our lives on you. Lord, lead us out of the valley of the shadow of darkness and into your light. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.